Amen, church. You may be seated this morning. If you're happy to be here, make a little bit of noise. Say amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I want to encourage you to, you know, during these moments, there, it's, it's still difficult for us to kind of have church. It's still a difficult time during our current state of affairs in our country. But be patient and keep praying. Never stop praying. Uh, let God's will be done upon our land and upon this country. And uh, soon we'll get back to normal. Amen. So open up your Bibles to the book of John, Gospel of John. For many of you that have been here for us these past couple of months and possibly year, we uh, know that we've been studying through the Gospel of John. And it's taken us a while because the Gospel of John is so in your face about the theology that he presents. And so we take our time to understand what John is really saying through the words of Jesus Christ as far as pointing us to heaven. And what we were learning last week in this passage between John chapter 5 verses 18 through 29 is one of the awesome factors in the life of Jesus. Jesus claims his authority over his people and over his church not because he's auto-proclaiming auto, auto himself this, but because he's pointing back to the sender and he's calling people to salvation. And in this context, in chapter 5, from verses 18 and on, he's calling the religious community to salvation. Once again, making sure that people know that religion will not save them. So the context of the authority of Christ is found within salvation history. The reason why Christ has authority is mainly because he has the power to separate. As we read earlier in Matthew chapter 25, he separates the sheep from the goat. Contrary to popular belief, everyone tries to... Say God is a little bit more, more wrathful and Jesus is more loving. Well, Jesus presents himself as the great divider, as the great separator, the one who separates the sheep from the goats. So it's in this context that we find that the authority of Christ is pronounced. And so that causes us to raise our ears and raise our hearts to attention knowing that we as a people must submit to the authority of Christ. And just for review, go with me back to verse 24 of chapter 5. And we'll start there all the way to verse 29. When Jesus calls the attention in verse 24 by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
So one of the first components that we studied last week of those who receive eternal life is what? Those who hear. Not only do they hear, but what they hear. What is it that they hear? They hear the gospel found in Jesus Christ providing eternal life. As the religious community that stood before Jesus, who was criticizing Jesus, who was, who was putting Jesus under fire, giving him to the authorities, what they said was that he was not in authority, what he was not the son of God. And in that context, Jesus claims and calls out salvation. And he asks them to come to salvation by believing in the son. And the same way here, today, many years later, we call this same gospel out to every single person here. If you want eternal life, and not just as a matter of time frame, not just as a, as a perspective on beautiful heaven, but as a life in Christ, in the presence of God, free from sin, then you must believe in the Son of God as the provider of salvation. So as a summary, as we've been learning this entire time, we don't find salvation in anything, anyone, or something else. It's not in your money. It's not in your financial circumstance. It's not in your job or in your career or in the government. It's only in Jesus Christ. And by hearing that gospel, people can be awakened to come to Christ. And that's why those who receive eternal life, as verse 24 says, they hear the gospel. And the second component that we're going to study from verse 24 is the component of belief or pisteo, as the Greek says, this faith that is deposited in the one who sends him. Go back to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears, there's the first component, hears my word, and then the second component is, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The factor, the two major factors in eternal life is the hearing of the gospel and belief. There is a responsibility to respond in belief, especially in the one who sent him. So this second quality is one of, of the one who receives life is the belief in the one who sent Jesus Christ. In this case, it is God the Father. This entire time from verse 18, Jesus has been pointing us back to the Father. So this word pempo or pisteo is believing in and describing someone who is dispatched to communicate. So the word pisteo is belief. The word pempo is the one who does the communication. The, the one who communicates the word of God. And this describes the purpose of communicating by carrying the same authority as the one who sends him. That's why it's important that Jesus keeps referring to the Father. Because the Father is the one who sent him. And if the Father sends him, then he has and carries and maintains that same authority. If you remember back in chapter 1, the Jewish authorities sent their representatives over to John the Baptist to ask him who he was. And therefore, they carried that authority and communicated that to John and forced him to clarify his identity. 
And likewise, in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul sends his workers to carry, carry out certain functions within the church. He does this with Timothy. He sends Timothy to Thessalonica and to the church of Corinth to carry out and execute authority over the church. Especially because he's being sent from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Peter does the same thing in the New Testament. If you remember what 1 Peter chapter 2 says, and you may not like this, and it was definitely not the popular thing to say back in the first century, especially under the Roman emperor. But in chapter 2 verse 13 of 1 Peter, he says, Be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or as supreme or to the governors as, here's that word, pempo, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. And so in Peter's case, in the first century, the government that was already persecuting Christians, that was about to burn Christians, they were to be obeyed because they were sent. So in this case, the government had the authority of the sender. Who does, the sender, who does Peter say the sender is? God. And this is the will of God. So it's definitely not a popular opinion in the first century. And it's definitely not a popular opinion in 21st century. However, because the one who sends has authority, therefore those who are placed have authority. And in John's gospel, this carries even more weight. And the reason why I'm spending a little bit of time on this is so you understand why Jesus says what he says. John's gospel, he presents the, the Messiah. The, the, he, there's so much Christology going on in John that, that Jesus' words are highlighted by pointing us back to the one who sent him as carrying the same authority as the heavenly father. That's why in John chapter 4, we read in verse 34 a couple of weeks ago, we read where he says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is referring to the work that the father has placed before him. So why is this important? Because the sender has a mission in mind and will therefore back that mission up by himself through his son. And again, what, where is the context of the authority of Christ? It's found in salvation. God is going to back up his son in saving the world, in saving those who will come to Christ. More popularly, we remember the words of Jesus in chapter 6. If you go there very, uh, in your Bible, in John chapter 6, read that with me in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now jump over a couple of chapters to chapter 12 and read with me in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Once again, what's going on here? Jesus is clarifying his authority in connection to his father, the sender, in context of salvation history. So we see this father-son relationship occurring, and we're about to be introduced into Trinitarian salvation once we move along in the Gospel of John. 
So the, the sending comes from the Father, and then the Father remains present in the activity of the Son. That, that's what you have to understand as Christology gets presented in the gospel. Jesus is doing everything the, that the Father is telling him to do, and he is accomplishing those purposes because the Father is in him. Because he is the Lagos of heaven. He is God on earth. And upon the Son's return, this is the important part. When the Son returns to heaven, as we read in Acts chapters 1 and 2, upon his return, the Son's work remains present in the disciples, which will later be the church. So how does the Father remain present in the Son, and when upon the departure of the Son, how does that work continue? Here is the Trinitarian connection. In chapter 13 of John, read that with me if you jump over a couple, couple chapters. In chapter 13, verse 20, here's the emphatic amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one... Uh, whoever who, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Here, the disciples carry the authority of the one that sent the Son. And in turn, the Father does and provides something else. Go with me to chapter 15. I want you to get familiarized with these texts. In chapter 15, ver verse, sorry, chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit from the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. One more chapter. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So here is this Trinitarian connection. God sends the Son and operates in the Son for salvation history. The Son in turn returns back to the Father because he promises to come back. But in the meantime, who does he send? The Helper. Who is the Helper? The Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit? In the first century, he's beginning to abide within the disciples. And then within the, the future church in Acts. And now, he is within us. So the, the authority that Christ carries comes from the Father it now lives within the church because it is carried out through the Holy Spirit. What does this mean for us? So the witnessing spirit of the present Christ in the church makes it efficacious all of our works and deeds. As a matter of fact, when we preach the gospel, it is the Holy Spirit at work. That's why you shouldn't be ashamed of evangelizing or saying you're a Christian because you're backed up by the Holy Spirit. Everyone's afraid to, to talk to their friends about Christ because they don't know what to say or, or they don't know their Bibles too much. Well, that should be a shame on you. But as a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is the one that operates within the church to give it power. 
Power to evangelize. Power to spread that message that Christ himself is spreading. That's why Jesus upon baptism says it's time for salvation. Repent of your sins. What's John the Baptist's first words? Repentance of your sins. Jesus gets baptized and then Jesus starts preaching repentance of sins. What should the church be preaching? Repentance of sins. Many people need to come to Christ and realize that they are dead in their sins. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, not some eloquent communication. It's not like you're going to try to outsmart your friend to get them to church. You'll never do it because you carry a worthless message to them. You're going to talk to them about some guy that died on a cross 2,000 years ago. You think that's relevant for them? You need the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore the church stands with authority of the Father through the work of the Son and the present witnessing of the Spirit during this chaotic moment. Everyone is running around like chickens with their heads cut off, scared of what the government is doing, scared of what's going on in our nation, scared of what's going on in our world with this new world order concept, scared of what everything that we hear on CNN, on Fox, or Telemundo, and Univision, everything that the world is surrounding us, it's chaotic. It brings fear into every person's life. But the church stands on the authority of the Spirit. The church stands on the authority of God. And therefore, we do not cower or run away when we face persecution. We stand strong and stand firm on the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, there's no need to be afraid. Because the Holy Spirit is alive in His church. The Holy Spirit, that's what eternal life means. As we uh, explained it last week, eternal life is for now. And this eternal life is provided to us through Jesus Christ and the outworking of the Holy Spirit. And so we stand strong, we stand in commitment, and we are not afraid. I read an interesting article a couple years back about this famous Kenyan marathoner, Henry Wanyoki. He had a stroke early on in his career. One of the fastest runners, even at the age of 15, breaking a lot of 5K and 10K records. And early on in his career, he, had a, he suffered a stroke. And when he awoke from the stroke, he was blind. He couldn't see. And he was relatively 20, 21 years old, re really young. So it didn't allow him to run, and he therefore fell into depression. And upon being motivated to continue his career in running, he started and so at the beginning of his early races, he would stumble and fall and get hurt because he couldn't see. Even though he had guides that would walk alongside of him, he would stumble and fall. And the reason being was, as he quotes in the article, I was afraid. Here we have this young man who was used to running at full speed was now afraid because he could not see. The article continues in Runner's Magazine telling the story that in 2005, in the London Marathon, he set a record for the T11 athletes. That's the athletes that are, are blind. With a record of 2 hours and 32 minutes. If you've ever ran a marathon, you know that's pretty fast. And he's blind. 
A week later in Germany, he broke his own record at 2 hours and 31 minutes. What was the success of his uh, of these accomplishments. Well, how, how did he get through this? Well, one of the first things he said was he saw something inside of him that had not died. What he was re- referring to in the late, and later in the article was fear had taken over his life and caused him to not only be uh, physically blind, but it broke him down and it paralyzed him. It wasn't until that he saw with clarity what he was meant to do. And so in the Christian life, it's interesting that Paul always compares the Christian life to the marathoner, to the the boxer, to the athlete. And it's the sense of vision that the church needs, clarity in the gospel that the church needs for what? So that we are not afraid. And that's why it's so important when Jesus says, hear the gospel and believe the gospel. That is clarity. That is vision. It's not just something that you physically see. It's the vision that God gives you through spiritual, through a spiritual lens to see what happens. I mean, we just saying victory is yours. We know who wins at the end of the day. We know who, the, who takes over. We know the story because we know what the word of God says. It's clarity for today. It's clarity for our own spiritual lives. And so this voice that comes out calling people to salvation is none other than God himself through, the, through, the, through his son Jesus Christ. And now the church carries the same authority. That's why once more at the end of chapter 5 and, and verse 24, th- those words should resonate in every life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. People who are dead spiritually fear for their lives. That's why they seek shelter in many alternatives. That's why there's so many things, options out there for security. It's it's a possible venture to Mars with the Tesla company. It's a possible uh, uh, making your own uh, bunkers deep below the earth. I mean, there's so much fear that people are seeking to find shelter. People are leaving the country. But those who are have vision, those who are clear in the gospel of Jesus Christ have life. And therefore, we're not afraid. So the the, the verses that follow, verses 25 through 27, are here to support that claim in verse 24. Verses 24, 25 through 27, we, we read about the voice of the Son of God. It's interesting that Jesus calls himself the Son of God for the first time in this chapter here. It is this voice in connection to the planning of, of the Father that brings the dead to life. It is a life-giving voice. As verse 26 says, if you read that with me, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So what the Son does is provide what the Father has already given him. And so what we can conclude with these verses is that that, that voice that Jesus calls for life is His father's voice. Read with me in Isaiah. If you go back to the Old Testament, 
Look what the prophet says in chapter 55 of Isaiah. One of the major prophets that point us to Christ. In chapter 55, verses 1 and on. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Here it is, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. There is an everlasting covenant being called out in the voice of the Son. That is the voice of God. Saying, come. It's saying, stop depositing your faith in things that will perish in things of this world and place your faith in the giver of life. And so as this section closes, the first section, verse 27, affirms this authority over Christ by showing us Jesus as the judge, the son of man who will bring to judgment all of those who believe and all of those who do not believe. So this anticipated king, as we read about in Daniel, inaugurates the kingdom, but he points himself to the authority of God by claiming himself judge. And he has every right to do so because he has the authority of God over him. Now, we divided the section in two between verses 18 through 27. And now these final verses affirm everything that Jesus has been calling. It isn't just an eschatological life that Jesus is pointing us to. That, that moment in time where we get to see God in heaven and the radiance of, of the Father. Now Jesus wants to bring us to earth. And he shows us how he does this. By pointing us to death. Every single person here will die physically. We know many people that have passed away. Maybe grandparents. Maybe our own parents. But the hour of death will come. And that's how Jesus brings us back. This is not only an eternal life with, with eternal perspective for, for, for when the return of God happens. Return of Christ happens. But even now. This section, read with me in, in John chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 28, and, and on. Read that once more. Jesus says, do not marvel at this. And what does he do? He points them to an hour. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here is where the division 
occurs. This is why Jesus is the ultimate divider. Everyone says Jesus wants to unite. Jesus is love. Jesus wants everyone to be in harmony and together. All who believe in the Son, yes. All those who do not, no. They will be separated. And those who are in the tombs will wake up. What he's referring to here, in the first verses, he's referring to spiritual death. In these last two verses, he's referring to that physical death. Those who are in the tombs will wake up. And they'll wake up to the two distinct destinies that Jesus as judge holds in his hand. Resurrection of life or resurrection of judgment. And this division takes place based upon what one has done. Now, let me clarify the point here. It's not works or deeds that will bring salvation. That's not what he's referring to here. Rather, belief. When one believes, he inherits eternal life. When one does not believe, he inherits condemnation. Or what Jesus says, judgment. And and this has been the key decisive factor in many churches. I mean, this is continuously evident in many modern churches, even ourselves. We're not exempt from this. We sit here and we believe we kind of, we're okay with God and, you know, we, we show up every Sunday. I mean, I've been here my entire life. I'm okay. I think I'm good. Or, or, or we just have this factor of non-belief. We don't really think that there is a hell. Or we don't really think that there is a heaven. And we're just sitting here and we're comfortable. Some of us just believe the way the people in John chapter 2 believed when they just saw the miracles and were kind of amazed and that's it. And then John says, Jesus knew their heart. Friends, we cannot hide from the sight of Jesus. We cannot hide our, our hearts from, from Christ himself. He knows our hearts and more importantly, he knows our lives and everything that we do. So there should be some level of commitment and an awakening even for the church. Stop sitting around acting like everything is fine when our spiritual lives are starving. Some people that come to church and, and, and they, they don't even care for, to listen to the word of God. It's just like, again? I have to sit here again? I'm glad that this quarantine is going on because now it's only 20 minutes or 30 minutes that I have to put up with this guy talking to me. And it's just like, uh, because they reject the word. Why do they reject the word? Because they have not heard the voice of Christ. They're, as what we read in chapter 1, they're antagonistic. They hate the light and prefer to live in darkness. But if you believe, then the integrity of every person will be judged by their activity as a son of God. That's why the New Testament puts so much emphasis on this so it keeps us from being comfortable. Ephesians chapter 2, you don't have to go there, but just listen to what Paul says in some of the the epistles in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what we're supposed to do after our spiritual resurrection. 
There is a proof to the integrity of our claim. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. James is the epistle that brings us all to a closing with this home run, and this is a very famous verse here. What good is it in chapter 2, verse 14? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So some Christians are... Are, are, are okay with this concept of eternal security because they're like, all right, cool, I'm, I gotta, I'm done. I'm good. Save once, save always, save I'm, I feel good. But they, re, they forget the passages that call the church to commitment. And that's why this passage, my friends, is especially designed for the church. That's why John chapter 5 is so critical for the church because he's talking not only to the religious community, but he's putting his disciples on check by giving them what it means to live out their eternal life here on earth and showing what Christ has done in their lives. And that's why predominantly every epistle that we read in the New Testament, it's not out for Anybody, in a sense, it's not just for the Gentiles. Every epistle in the New Testament has a church in focus. Ephesus, Corinth, Thessalonica, Rome. There is a focus. And therefore, it's a calling out to purify the church. Walk in integrity. Walk in purity. And show that you are are a Christian, not because you're going to be saved by that, but it's because you are saved. It is because you have eternal life that you can show what that looks like, what that is, and what God has done. Got to always remember that Jesus is the one who speaks on hell with such harsh words. He's the one that gives us these New Testament images. The first one that gives us these New Testament images on hell. Why? Is it just to scare us? Is it just to give us the heebie-jeebies and kind of be like, oh my God, scare us into church and scare us into commitment? No, because it is a reality that exists without him. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 42, And throw them into the fiery furnace, into that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in Mark, he emphasizes more in chapter 9, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There's two realities from those who will wake up from their tomb. We've been saying this continuously. Some to eternal life and some to condemnation. Jesus is the great divider. But he's purifying his church. And he's calling everyone to obedience. So friends, don't sit comfortably in church to enjoy 
a wonderful service. It's not for your enjoyment. It's for commitment. It's for the worship of our God. Rise with me this morning. Before Pastor Ishmael comes up, I just want to pray for you again. I want to pray for every single one that to come to commitment in Christ. I want to pray for you to stop being lazy spiritually. To guard your salvation with fear and trembling. Father, your church is your church. And you purify your church. As we stand here today, may we stand firm in commitment to the one who has authority over our lives. To the one who can separate the sheep from the goats. Purify your church these days. Call out your church. Call out for surrender, complete surrender. And a life that demonstrates what you have prepared before beforehand in eternity past. I pray that we wake up in Jesus' name. Amen.